Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another edition of the BSSH Sport and History Podcast. My name is Connor Heffernan, and I'm very, very happy uh, to be joined today by Jorge Tovar, who is the Associate Professor at the Universidad de los Andes in Bogota. And I think what I will do first, because we're going to be speaking about a really interesting paper on the soccer lockdowns during the coronavirus, and then a, a book on VAR and justice and fairness in football, but before we get into any of that, uh, I'm going to ask Jorge to introduce himself and then we'll get cracking. So please. Well, thank you, Connor, for inviting me to talk with, with you about football. It's always a pleasure. Uh, I'm a professor at the University of Los Andes in Colombia. Uh, I have a PhD from Berkeley in economics. And I've been working on sports economics and uh, the history of economics for quite a while now, I would say. Uh, almost 10 years uh, from an academic point of view. But as all of us, I've been interested in football for all my life. Brilliant. And I mean, it's such a pleasure and a joy to be talking uh, with you about this paper initially, or first of all. So for people who are interested, we'll have it in the show notes. But the title is Soccer, World War II and Coronavirus, a comparative analysis of how sports shut down and that was recently published in the Soccer and Society special issue on COVID-19 and soccer. So the first thing I would ask is, where did the inspiration or the idea come from to do this really interesting comparative work on the war lockdowns and then the uh, COVID lockdowns? Well, uh, I, was, I was in, actually, I was in the United States when the pandemic hit. I was teaching in the University of Madison, of, of Wisconsin at Madison a course on sports economics. And uh, when, we, when, when we had to close and go, go behind bars, I say, and were unable to go out again for a while, I, I was very impressed of how uh, the world was closing. But since I liked a lot the history of football, I was particularly impressed on how football was closing. Because I have always said in all my classes that I teach that football is nothing but the reflection of society. Uh, so I, I thought it was a very nice indicator of how the world was closing, how fast the world was closing. And then, of course, comes the question of how fast were we closing? And uh, I started thinking about other events in the, in the world in the, last, the past century. And you would think, uh, you know, there are very specific places where they have war or where they have some kind of issue. Uh, but worldwide, I, I, would, I would say only World War II was the, the most similar uh, worldwide event uh, comparable to the pandemic crisis. So that's when I started to think, let's, let's look and see what happened. Mm. And I mean, it's a very interesting kind of comparison because as you go with in the paper the lockdowns during the second world war were very different to the ones then that were experienced very recently during the covid pandemic so can you go into what what a lockdown looked like in the 1940s versus the 2020s yes because uh, you, you know you would think that world war ii especially in areas that would hit very hard uh, maybe you would think Switzerland was okay, but and it was okay. But you would say the rest of Europe uh, should have closed because there, there were bombings or bullets flying, you know, violence every day, killings. Um, 
And you would be surprised that there was, um, there was this effort in all, all across Europe to keep uh, soccer going, not necessarily by authorities, but by people. They would just want to keep soccer going. And, and then you learn stuff like, you know, Germany is a special case. Ger Germans are, may maybe we don't see it from, from, from uh, outside Germany, <laughs> but they are nuts about football. They've been nuts about football for, they're like the Brazilians of Europe, if you start thinking about how really they, how much they care about, about football. That's probably why they are so good. The, you know, the day before they, the, the Russians entered uh, Berlin, 1945, they were, still, they were still having an official soccer game with the stadium almost packed. Uh, so it, it's a thing that uh, really surprises me. And I thought it was worth telling the story, you know, just for generations to think about, because I have the theory that we will forget very fast what happened in the spring of 2020. The, the closure is something that even we, that we live, we lived it, you know, we, we don't, I don't believe that that happened, that the world closed. It's, it's unbelievable. Mm. And I think the thing that's so interesting in that, as I say, is even though we have comparisons between the Second World War and COVID with the lockdowns, the, the slow stream of lockdowns in Europe, as you say, like the tanks are rolling in, but they're still finding time you know, for a friendly match. And you do a really good job of showing this is what happened in Germany. This is what happened in Italy. This is what happened in Poland. This is what happened in England, which I thought was such a funny, or if not funny, pardon me, such an interesting um, thing to look at. Because then when you look at COVID, it's complete, you know, the shutters go down completely. And it's not, how can we, how can we play the game? It's, we can't play the game. Yes, that's true. You, you kind of, you can follow the tanks in Europe uh, as they move. Uh, Europe closes or tries to close. So first Poland, then you know they go to East, then they go to Finland, and each country kind of responds in a different way. Uh, I always say a very interesting case is Norway, actually, where they 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 were probably one of the countries that they really shut football because they decided that they didn't want to play anything that where Nazis had control of. It's, it's still, sorry about the, the phone. And the, no, no, you're fine, don't worry. And, uh, okay. Uh, and so you, you kind of see, and you see the effort of people to try to keep on playing. And then you see the big countries in, in the war, you would say England, uh, or the, yeah, England, the UK, or Italy, and Germany. Uh, the effort the, the authorities made in this case to actually keep it going, you know, as a, as a means of showing that, yes, we are at war, but we can keep uh, some type of normality. Uh, that was especially true in Germany, um, uh, you know, they, they annexed Austria and so they expanded the league. Uh, that was also true in Italy, at least until uh, Mussolini was killed then it was more complicated. And in England, what they did is they kind of decided, well, we cannot have a normal league, but for reasons like, you know, it's costly to have teams uh, going far away. You know, they, they, we, we have to restrain the consumption of gasoline, for instance, right? 
so they worked on having a small local leagues, and that's what they did. But they kept football going. Hmm. And the I suppose impetus to do that is then when we bring it into the comparative side, where we start to compare it to the COVID lockdowns, is completely different because it is that the finality and the shutdown of COVID. So I'm wondering, as you're writing the paper or when you're submitting the paper, how, how, how what was, sorry, what I'm trying to say, what was the gap between the lockdowns and soccer happening and you shutting the paper? Because it is interesting <laughs> in the conclusion where you mentioned that, you know, there are plans on how to resume soccer, but little can be said with certainty. So obviously it was um, resumed before like the project restarts. Uh, came across Europe. So I'm wondering how, how, how quickly yeah. did you write the paper after the world sh- shut down? So uh, I, I originally wrote, I write a bi-weekly column in a national newspaper here in Colombia about soccer. And my original writing was there, you know, 400 words. I wrote something, you know, we could think that the world's closing or more like in World War II and something like that. And from there until I, I the paper was uh, accepted, but then even within acceptance and you know publication, you kind of have a couple of things to, to, to incorporate in the paper because yes, everything was shutting down, but there were still a, a few countries that were late in arriving to these lockdowns. Mm-hmm. And there are a few that never came. So I, I did try to incorporate into the paper as much as I could, as much as I could. Um, but of course, at some point you read today and maybe if I had a, a more, more than a week or so, because uh, I did try to write it fast. Uh, I, I probably, as we all did at the beginning of the pandemic, we reoriented all our research and work towards COVID, even without thinking about it. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, this is, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a, I, I believe it's a nice history to have it there published for people to remember, and it should come out as soon as possible. And so, yes, there was some kind of uh, thing that I would have liked to put in the paper that just happened later. And because the, the closing procedures in, in, in the coronavirus is just too, too fast. You know, it, it's, there is one difference with, uh, with World War II. And it's that in, in the pandemic, we have the World Health Organization saying we are in pandemic and that happened in March 11, March 12. Before that, uh, they closed some countries, even in Europe, Europe, well, first China, then uh, they closed, uh, Italy was the biggest. You know, when they closed Italy, that's when the world of football really became aware. So it's a very big league, very big country in terms of football. And uh, I, I have another chapter in a book I wrote about how lo- lockdown affected Latin American football, uh, South American football, actually. And for us, it was big news because we had the qualifiers uh, a few weeks ahead. And the problem is that if they shut down Italy, much of our players are locked in Italy. And so we started to worry because unlike in World War II in South America, yes, we had, of course, we suffered the the war in in, uh, economic sense and social sense, but we didn't have the destruction. Uh, and football here was full of peace and actually grew a lot in the 1940s in South America. I mean. mm. But now for the first time in our history, 
we were worried that we couldn't play football. And, and you know, I was saying German and, and Brazilians are not yet in South America, especially the qualifiers are very important nowadays because all our good players come home. And that's when we are able to actually see good football, world-class <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, world football, because they are all abroad. And so that was like the bell, you know, what's going on? Well, and so we st- everyone started saying, and you see the story is the same in Colombia, Argentina, Peru, uh, Chile. No, we're not going to close. We're not going to close. We're not going to close. We're going to play. And, and it's very funny because you say, we're going to play. And they say, everyone said that on March 10, 11. And then when this guy from the WHO says, we are in pandemic, the governments just come in and say, we're shutting, it's closed. No, but football, no, no, everything. Are you sure you're closing football? I mean, it's interesting to think about again on that comparative element, the role the governments play. Because when you show during the world, the Second World War, there's a sense of the government saying, well, no, let's keep playing, like, let's keep playing, let's find a way of like allowing people to enjoy this. But in COVID, the government is now the, I suppose, one of the chief um, promoters of shut this down now. This is a, this is a problem. Yes. And in fact, one of the last, but when I say last, it's just a week yeah. <laughs> went by, was Argentina. And Argentina, the government didn't want to close because they had this Second World War idea that, okay, we close the economy. Uh, we must keep football because to do something while they're locked down. So see football, mm. uh, watch football. But uh, it was actually River played one of the biggest team in Argentina and in South America uh, that said, no, we're not going to play. We're not going to go. And they didn't show up for a game in their stadium. They were playing home. And so at that point, they had the, everyone to say, yeah, this is not going anywhere. We're closing. So it took six days to close South America. I mean, it's just the speed it's unbelievable. Mm. And it's that, something that's going to be very difficult for people that didn't live it to understand. Yeah, and as I said, that's earlier on when you said you wanted to like chronicle this history because again, having lived through it, it still seems surreal. Um, the rapidity with which things shut down. So it's such a wonderful self-contained history to show like the last time there was a global event you know, things didn't shut down, they, the intensity turned down maybe, but it still continued. Whereas here it was, you know, two weeks ago I was watching a Champions League semi-final or a Champions League match, and now there's no sport and we're not allowed out of the house. So it does a really good job of showing the, like, night and day. It's almost like the, the flip was switched, or the switch was flipped, rather, and it just everything was shut off. And I don't think there's a comparison to that outside of the Great or outside the Second World War, as you said. Yeah, I don't find it. And it, 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 it's even more, you know, uh, uh, football was, uh, well, always in a way globalized in the 1940s, but there were only a few leagues in Africa, uh, something in Asia, uh, but football was mostly Latin America, Mexico, and worse into Argentina, and Europe, of course. And that was the real world of football, maybe North Africa. But now there is no doubt that football is everywhere. I mean, mm. FIFA has more members, and I like that because I always find it very interesting. FIFA has more members than the United Nations. Uh, so so uh, when you start closing and FIFA doesn't want to close, right? 
But, you know, governments start to press and then, yeah, we're going to try to keep football and that happened in many places. Uh, but then they see they can't, except for, you know, some countries when you, you see them today doing similar stuff, Belarus, mm. uh, they didn't close. They just said, well, we need to keep football moving on. And a couple of more countries, so Nicaragua, but also, you know, this, I would say this is strange, all these countries with a strange government, Right, these people that they are not. Nicaragua, you also have this guy who is in a head of state for 20, 30 years, and he just won the election with 90% of the votes because he's so good, you know, <laughs> not really that good, but <laughs> uh, uh, there's no, all the contenders are in prison. So, right, so <laughs> that's why he won, he wins, and uh, he, he says, Well, we're going to keep playing because I say so. Uh, so this weird government is keep open the football, but in the rest of the world, they just decide that it's the best strategy to close even football. When I say even football, it means a lot because it is the way that has been used in history, it's been used in many times in World War Cups in, in other types of cups for governments to try to control masses and, and move public opinion in their favor and stuff. And when they close football, they say, yeah, we have nothing to do. We have to close even football. And that's what the pandemic was. It was just an unprecedented event. And uh, I don't think it will happen again in our lifetime, but we'll see. I, I wouldn't say no now. <laughs> mm. um, never say never now, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but actually on that note, I'm interested, when governments were beginning to consider, you know, locking down and shutting down, etc., you mentioned sort of Argentina tried to do a World War II-like system of let's shut everything down but keep football going. Did you find any situation in which people organically drew up comparisons with, um, with the Second World War, or you know, where people said, okay, during the war we did this, or is this just it's a very niche comparison? No, that's a good question, and I, 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 I haven't really. Uh, you would have to ask probably the elderly or uh, historian, but I would say the elderly really. We live this right, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I haven't really. That's a good question, no. But I don't have a story about someone uh, saying, you know, I remember, you know, we hit World War Two, but we would go out and maybe play football or whatever. Uh, probably there are stories about that. Uh, you know, I did read things about old people, especially in Europe, uh, saying that they were they were worse now than in the World War II because at least they could go on hide in Germany. I remember some guy reading some Spanish newspaper, but not related to football. Uh, hmm. Because, I mean, what, what happened in World War II is you're hiding, or many, you know, you were Jew or something like that. You were hiding from the enemy you were you, know, you were running for your life, but you could move if, you know, try to escape yeah, actually, right? Or you would hide in a place and, and then the person that lived was hiding you would bring you food or whatever. And that happened in a lot of, in a lot of places in Europe. Now, uh, we lived uh, something that, you know, you're from Ireland, I'm from Colombia. Uh, Colombia is a special country where we're very violent, but we, we have these liberties still where we can move, right? We never had this dictatorship. Uh, obviously, you haven't. Um, like you, what 
we saw in the 1970s or the you know the Cold War in Eastern Europe where you wouldn't be able to to go out if the police says that you couldn't go out. Uh, and now we lift that strange phase in our life where if you went out, you were like sneaking, like someone, you know, a Jew in World War II or someone in the communist Europe uh, hiding from the police because that, that's what happened. It happened to me. I, my father got sick at some point and I had to go there and to his house and then to the hospital. But while going to his house, I was very scared because there was no one in the street. Mm-hmm. And if the police stopped me, I didn't have, I only had my story. Believe me, my father is sick. I need to go. And, you know, we're not used to that. Uh, if you if you read uh, Simon Cooper's book, uh, I forget the, on, on the story about this German guy that he, he liked football and he wanted to go to see Bayern Munich play in Eastern Europe. And he was mm-hmm. then followed. Uh, what was the name of the book? Um, well, well, you, well, you probably read the story, You're right? And he, the story goes that he wants to go and see Bayern Munich, and he's only allowed to in Eastern Europe. And he used his mother to cross the border, right? He says at the border, you know, the, the, the Stasi knows that uh, a lot of fans are going to see Bayern Munich, and they they're not allowing them to go back uh, to to see the game, so they, they send them back home. And he says he went with his mother in the car. And he says, you know, my mother was born in this town of Poland uh, and uh, we need, uh, we, she wants to go and see a house. And so he did cross the border. But when he came back, it turns out the Stasi was actually on to him. And the story goes, ends at that at some point in the, when, you know, when the, when the wall fell, uh, they found this, this story of him and they said, uh, you know, we have checked him, uh, we have interrogated him, we will not take his son. And that's what impresses me, you know, because he wanted to see football at some point. They were going to take his, they, they thought about taking his son. And that's how I felt, and I think many people felt in the pandemic. It's like, what's my crime? Mm-hmm. I went out. <laughs> we are not used to that. Most of the world is not used to that. Yeah, and I think it shows the the oddness of that reality because it happened so quickly and i think it's so yeah in, the special issue um from soccer and society which is dedicated to actually what this meant in the sporting context the early impressions the initial responses the just strangeness of this um of this event and it, it's just it's something that needs to be put into that time capsule uh unexamined now to slightly change gears um you've also recently published a book um entitled on fairness justice and var um russia 2018 and france 2019 world cups in a historical perspective um as as someone who is not a fan of var i will try not to rant um about var too much but could you maybe give a introduction or an overview of the book and i suppose what motivated you to to write the book because var is has long been talked about, but it's such a recent introduction into football. So what was it like studying it from an so, academic perspective? Yeah, from, from a football perspective, I am worried about what VAR is doing to football. Mm. Uh, because it can be good and it can be bad. 
But then I started to say, well, you know, there, there's been quite a lot written about VAR from sporting perspective. And it's just, I don't like it, you like it. So what they did, they tried to, uh, to, to embrace it, to frame it uh, within a methodology. Mm-hmm. And the methodology I chose to <laughs> turn out to be really hard was to think and read and study a lot about the theories of justice by all these philosophers and starting in the 19th, well, in the 20th century roles and all the idea that uh, you, you need certain conditions to have a justice society and mm-hmm. you know how to think about justice and fairness within a society. Now, I, I, I had some discussions with real, I say, with specialists in, in, in philosophical and history of economic thought. And, you know, they, some of them were not very happy. Some of them, you know, you can, you can actually think about it like that, but you have to be careful because uh, the, the theory of justice are thinking about uh, society. Hmm. Uh, you cannot really, uh, you can apply it, uh, but you have to do it very carefully if you think about uh, these theories when talking about football. So th- that's what I try to do, especially in chapter two, where I write about the theory of justice and try to bring it to, to football. Because what I wanted to do overall was try to think whether, wh- where is VAR going and what's the limit? Uh, because at some point, uh, VAR uh, seems like the ultimate weapon to bring justice and maybe even fairness to the game, right? Mm. And uh, if I jump to the conclusion, <laughs> I, I, I find things, you know, after studying all the theory of justice, they have all these schemes to actually to, to imagine a society where it will be just. They even have a lot of discussions of what justice is. What do I understand for a just society? Uh, it's very difficult to, to define it. They, when one of these big philosophers or economists say something, there will be others saying, you're wrong, you're right, and we can have this idea. So even from a theoretical point of view, there is no prevailing, I would say, there is no unique, of course, there is no prevailing view of how to think about a just society. So when we move to this small society that is, that is football, what I conclude is that uh, we have to understand that uh, justice is unachievable. Uh, so we should limit VAR, VAR to a point where it will solve certain problems, but we should not push it too much. One example, uh, it makes a lot of sense. And I, after the book was published, she was talking to me about what happens within the Finnish and things happen. Yeah? But after the book was published, uh, Arsene Wenger, I've never said that name in English, so I don't know how you say it. Arsene Wenger. Arsene Wenger, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, it's my first time I say that name in English. <laughs> um, he, he, he's a consultant for FIFA, and he just uh, has this idea that in the next World Cup, uh, 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 offsides will be fully controlled by VAR. Probably technology is there, and and I think that's a great idea. But then you have these other steps, and I, an example I put is consider uh, the the first goal of France in the last uh, final World Cup against Croatia. 
uh, where it's a foul against uh, Griezmann mm -hmm. uh, in the in the outside the uh, you know, 20 yards or 25 yards score uh, which a bit to the right, and they, they take the free kick and it's a goal. But when you see the, the video, there was no foul at all. Uh, so that's when you start thinking, well, up to what point and how should VAR come in? And then you, what I do, I like a lot. I mean, I love history of football. So you go back and you see a similar situation in the 1966 World Cup final between England and Germany, because you don't remember, I don't remember anything. I was going to say you remember, but we have read or we have seen that Germany drew in the last minute, right? Mm -hmm. But the, the English always say, and forget about what happened in the, in the after in the, the extra time. Uh, what the English said, that foul was not a foul. So it's like what you saw in 66 with no VAR and nothing repeats itself, uh, you know, in 2018. Uh, mm -hmm. The same thing, a goal, a definitive goal, you know, the Germans drew when, when England won at the end, but in the, in the French case, they won the game, but the point is you have kind of the similar situations across history and you have to think, how can we advance? So in that sense, I, I, I was suggesting that VAR makes sense if, if you kind of uh, move it in a, in a real-time basis. So uh, an option is to have, you know, on-field referee and a VAR room referee, but they also they have uh, decision-making capabilities which means that, uh, you know, if I'm at the VAR, you know, you whistle, foul the referee in the, in the pitch, so that, but the other guy, you said, I don't know why they need 20 repetitions. You see it in two repetitions, that it's not a foul, right? Uh, and so he calls, you know, it's not a foul, the disaster is not a foul. And so you kind of don't stop the game. And I put another example. Uh, I do remember that one. You seem a little too young to that, but I remember the 1982 World Cup final. And the more, you know, here in Latin America for us, Brazil 1982 was the team that we grew up. And I cried when they lost against it. But still we kind of recognize that Italy was a great team. So most of us, I would say, in Latin America, you know, I'm doing a big generalization, but uh, wanted uh, uh, Italy to win the final in, against Germany. But the point is, you have seen it, I'm sure, the, the, the Tardelli's goal, when he mm -hmm. scores and he runs like crazy, nodding his hair from side to side. And it's just like an iconic moment in World Cup history. It's the celebration that you, as a kid, you, you, you repeat it. And I, I was saying that, uh, I forget the guy that scored the goal in, against Germany in, in 2006 semifinal uh, for Italy, the, I forget his name, but he scored the goal, you know, a beautiful goal with his left foot in the semifinal. Uh, he celebrated like Tardelli, which points to me that, you know, of course, kids in Italy, you know, they saw that goal and see that goal and it's like, this is us. So imagine because of bar, uh, you stop the celebration. Even imagine that afterwards you give the goal. But you know, football is especially about emotions. Mm. Uh, and if you cut that celebration, uh, it's not the same, you know, and you've seen it, you know, we score a goal and then VAR. Yes, goal. Oh, okay, yeah, what is that? 
football is some, so my point is that we have to justice is full justice is unattainable mm. uh, so we should move beer towards a realistic point of view where it makes complete sense in some in some areas of football like uh, offside and it should be allowed to work in a way where the game is normally not stopped at all because I did make some calculations in the book and uh, I used I used data from the male and the female World Cups, and very detailed event level data and stuff. And, and you see that even in the World Cup, the stoppage time is higher uh, when you have a year than when you have any other type of events. And, and that's that's boring. I, I think that is the part that's going to kill football. If we keep you know stopping the game like in basketball, mm. the point of football is to to move it, to move it. Yeah, and it's funny, just as a slight tangent, you know, I said about killing the game. Um, you, you might have gone to American football when you're in uh, Wisconsin, but my first time going to a, a football game in Texas, um, where I was previously, I kept asking the person who brought me questions because there'd be a flag on the play or someone would come on, they'd wave a red flag and we'd have to stop for three minutes so that the advertisers could advertise the game. And by the end of it, I was so bored. <laughs> which is awful because it just kept stopping and I was used to soccer and I was used to Gaelic football uh, the Irish sport which is just non-stop the whole time and it really um, it was very hard to adjust to going into a sport that had so many stoppages um, due to things that were superfluous or seemed relatively straightforward that didn't need the you know the continual stopping um, to bring this back now to your book lest anyone who enjoys American football gets angry at me you you obviously did a huge amount of like philosophical thinking about justice and fairness when you were studying this because i don't know anything outside of what was reported when they started to bring in var were these conversations also had in fifa from that philosophical point of view or was it a case of like we have the technology let's use the technology people are getting annoyed at goal line clearances um so i'm just wondering did did the organizing bodies, did you get any sense that they also engaged in? That is a good question. I did a good question because I did work on that specifically. There's a, hmm. a, a big, I don't know if you chapter or at least a big segment of the book talking about how FIFA came to allow VAR and the goal technology. Mm-hmm. For, of course, first came the goal technology. And when you see the, the memoirs of FIFA, of actually, not FIFA, it's the International Football Board, right? one where you have the four British associations and FIFA. Uh, that's who make the decision. Uh, but when you when you see the, the memoirs or the course of those meetings, uh, what you find is what we already knew first. Uh, it is a very conservative uh, uh, thing. They, they, they really don't want change. They say, you know, this has worked for many years. You don't want to change it. Uh, if I remember well, the dates is in, in the early 2000s, uh, Adidas and other company bought some kind of uh, technology uh, to, to, to test. They allowed it, but then they said no. And they definitely, actually, they definitely said no just before the 2010 World Cup. Hmm. So they said, this is not football because, and they were worried about what happened after They were worried that. If they allowed if the, if, if they allowed the gold technology, then technology would move 
further into the game, which happened with the VAR, but that's another story, right? And then something happened, and, and you remember this game, Germany, England, 2010. Uh, as Lampard's shot was a goal by, you know, a meter at least. Everyone saw it. We all saw it on TV. I saw the food. I, I saw a lot of videos you write in this book, and you see Capello, you know, celebrating, except the referee <laughs> and his assistant. I don't know how, right? And after that, immediately after that, the FIFA said, yeah, we have to implement more technology, and it just doesn't make sense. Everyone saw it. Because at least in 1966, when you have first goal, goals, right, that according to some research, very technical research, which I cite in the paper, actually, in the book, they have some weird algorithm, whatever technology, and they, they show that it, it wasn't a goal. But you know, the, the TV footage is not very clear. And so you can kind of understand and let it fade. But in 2010, it was obvious it was a goal for everyone except the two guys that matter. So FIFA at that point decided to change. And then came the debate on uh, whether they should allow for further uh, uh, technology going into the game. And uh, again, there was explicit uh, uh, phrases saying that uh, this will kill the game, uh, this will destroy the, the, the concept of football. Uh, but uh, then it turns out, and I didn't know this, I, I learned it while researching for the book, it, it turned out that who, who really pushed this technology was the Dutch uh, Football Association. Uh, they really started uh, thinking about this, they wanted to change, and they, they, it, they were at some point, they, they sent you know, what they were doing to the FIFA to the board, to the football board, um, International Football Association board, right? And um, and they were they were told to leave it. Don't do it anymore. We don't want it. They, you know, the Dutch said, okay, we will not. But they did. They did. They did. Kept testing. And at some point, uh, it's just pressure came so strong that they allowed to test it and so. MLS and some countries in Europe and Brazil also decided to test the system. And it was actually approved really fast because it was approved only in March 28, just before the World Cup, uh, the, the Russia World Cup. Uh, so it, it did take a 10-year process to actually incorporate uh, technology. Now, uh, if, you, if you see a bit about VAR, there's an interesting thing. When you see how VAR was used in Russia and how VAR was used in France 2019 in the female World Cup, you see a big difference in, in, in its usage. So I go back to uh, the use of red cards. Mm. And, and you, you know that uh, cards were used for the first time in Mexico 1970. Mm. We in Latin America, in Latin America, we like to say that they were used because we, we almost got killed in 1966. You know, Pelé got hammered and all our stars. So we, we, we sell the story and it could be a, a debate for another show, for another episode on what happened with that, that World Cup. But that's a, the point is that uh, in the 1970s, in the 1970 World Cup, there were no red cards. The instrument was so new that reference really didn't Right, and, and I have a, a video footage from Pelé 
in the semifinal against Uruguay, uh, this, this, Uruguay, Uruguay, this Uruguayan came running. He was going to break Pelé, of course. But, you know, Pelé had this thing that he has eyes in, eyes in his back. So when he saw the Uruguayan coming, he got his elbow and he hit the guy into his face, you know, the elbow in his mouth, essentially. And his head goes back and forth, back and forth. Uh, and the referee didn't expel Pelé. Um, it would have been a great, you know, hmm. sorry to tell the first person to be expelled in a World Cup Pelé. Red cards were only used in the 1974, uh, were actually used, I mean, they were used by a referee in the 1974 World Cup in Germany. Uh, and something similar happened to the VAR. It was used in, in 2018, mostly for penalties, but it was used. But when you see the data for France, it's used a lot more, even with less games, but it was used a lot more because kind of they get used to it. So now I think for the next World Cup, we really have to decide how we want to use VAR to not change the essence of the game, which is one of the uh, things that people at the board uh, during these meetings keep saying. We don't want to change the essence. They will change it. I think VAR can coexist without changing the essence of the game. But I think mm. it is important to acknowledge that we cannot achieve full justice. Some, some, some place you cannot say. Um, oh, no, sorry. Talk too much. <laughs> oh, no, it, it's perfect. And I mean, as we start to wind down, just on the point of your book, like you do make the point in the introduction that VAR is the most important technological breakthrough in the history of soccer. And it's so interesting to see how it works at a philosophical level, because I think as fans of the game, which, you know, I mean, you clearly are, um, you have your own personal experience of it or personal opinions of VAR. So I think it's fascinating to think about it from like the philosophical ideas of the game, because a lot of people say that they want to preserve the game or they don't want to interfere with the spirit of the game. But at the moment, it is clearly interfering with what people would understand philosophically as football or the excitement and joy of football. So as my second last question, um, I will just ask the role of the media in debates around VAR. Is this something that you look at in the book or is this something that you came across in your research? Because it seemed interesting to me looking at primarily English based uh, newspapers and media outlets in England and in the United States there was a sense of, oh, we need something. This is getting ridiculous, you know, be it England and Lampard, you know, our goal was disallowed or Champions Leagues, you know, Chelsea and Liverpool did the ball go over the line or didn't it? And looking for different forms of technology to come in. But then very quickly, there was the media kind of backlash against VAR and against technology. So as a, a, a lay idiot, which I class myself as in this particular area, it seemed interesting that um, the media was building towards getting this introduced in the round and then very quickly kind of shot back in the other direction. Is that something that you came across or you found or, or is that completely misunderstanding the situation? No, no, I think media is very important. I, I, I don't explicitly have, you know, kind of accept on the role of media, but I do acknowledge that media played a role. I mean, pressure on the need to do something after Lampard's shot was there, not only England, it was worldwide. That mm. this doesn't make sense. We all know it was a goal. Why didn't they got? You know, if you, if you think about it, when was the first time VAR was used? 
And I, I, I don't know if you, you should remember, uh, we all remember, but we don't kind of acknowledge it. It was in the final World Cup final of 2006 when Zidane, when Zidane headed the, the Italian guy. Yeah, felt because of the fourth TV monitor, right? <laughs> and we all saw it on our TV. And in principle, they were not allowed to watch TV. But justice was made. I mean, Zidane, whatever happened between them, but Zidane was correctly expelled. Uh, so yes, media plays a role. Uh, and, and after, after Lampard shot, they played a role. And then they are playing a role in England and in Germany a bit too, against VAR, right? They're moving in the wrong direction and stuff. Uh, I don't. I, I mentioned that in the book, but yeah, I don't have an, an explicit uh, segment on that. What I do have, and it's really interesting, is some uh, review on literature about how you re re uh, review uh, certain events in a, in a game. Mm -hmm. So it turns out there is some psychological research, psychology research, in terms of whether you show, you, you make a different decision depending on the speed that you see an event, uh, on how slow it is shown. And even if they show you in, with some small number on the, on the screen, saying at what speed are you seeing this particular event? So there is a, a room to improve in how to use VR. And it's not clear to me what they're doing. I know something about, you know, whether you, they're going to use this Offside, uh, or they are planning at least to use it for offside. They are trying to advance, but I don't know in which way they are they are moving. You know, FIFA is a bit close in terms of. Um, as a a very petty football fan, I want VAR to be used when it benefits my team, and then VAR not to be used um, yeah. if it <laughs> if it damages my team. I think I don't think that's too much to ask. Um, so no, no, of course that's what we all want. Yeah. <laughs> So cognizant of, uh, of your time, I'll just ask, is there anything else that I should have asked you or you'd like to talk about um, before we head off? Or, or was, was there any area that you really wanted to talk to that we didn't get a chance to? No, I think it's very, it has been a really nice talk. I, as I told you, uh, I think of the year before, I just love talking about football. It's a, it's a great opportunity. Uh, no, and I hope so. Well, you you guys are able to check my book and comment about it. And for me, it was a major challenge because if I had written only about VAR and data and stuff, it would have been very easy. Uh, mm. But I I felt that we needed some kind of approach to say something outside football about what justice is. And I did try to, I made that effort and I hope it came out uh, correctly. But no, thank you very much for having me here. No, th thank you so much. So just as a last um, reminder for listeners, and I'll, I'll have the links to both the article and the book in the show notes. Um, the book is on fairness, justice and VAR, Russia 2018 and France 2019 World Cups in a Historical Perspective. And that is published by Palgrave Macmillan. And then the article that we began the show talking about is soccer, World War II, and coronavirus, a comparative analysis of how the sport shut down. And that's published in Soccer and Society in their special issue on COVID and soccer. So on that note, Jorge, thank you so much. Um, 
really appreciate it. And as always, it's great to speak about football. <laughs> Thank you very much. I hope to keep in touch. Thank you.